This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how the state is planning to rein in out-of-pocket drug costs. Plus, we ask a counselor who specializes in cult recovery about what might happen to a local Colorado cult now that their leader is dead. Many people walk away. The majority of people do walk away from groups when they finally have enough. And we hear about what CU students are looking for in the search for the system's next president. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The University of Colorado Board of Regents is set to begin searching for a new president to helm the four-campus system. This comes after current CU president Mark Kennedy announced earlier this month that he would be leaving his post. The board will pay Kennedy $1.3 million to leave his position by July 1st, a year before his contract would have expired. And as the search for new leadership gets underway, many students, particularly people of color, are excited by the prospect of a change in leadership and by the prospect of a more transparent search. That's been the focus of recent reporting from Jason Gonzalez, who covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. Hey, Jason. Thank you for having me. Before we get into some of what you're hearing from students, let's square our ourselves with where we're at in the process. When does the search formally begin? Kennedy will be out by uh, July 1, which is about two years into his contract. Regents have to look at appointing an interim president at this point. So board chair Glenn Gallegos has said that um, Regents will go ahead and do that soon. The board's next regular meeting is scheduled for June 17th. I'm not sure if we'll be able to uh, see a new uh, interim president by then, but at least the the Regents will be getting that moving uh, around that time. As far as the search timeline and what happens after, uh, it's really unclear how they're going to go about this and when they'll start that process. I do know they have to go through some work to get that moving. Well, and there's a lot of attention on the process part of this, in part because of how the search that led to Kennedy's hiring went. Can you bring us back in time and give us some context about what happened then and how that might inform the search this time? Yeah, so Kennedy was uh, the sole finalist for the University of Colorado presidency in 2019, and Regents appointed him on a 5-4 Republican majority, and Democrats at the time really uh, protested against his presidency because, of course, of being a sole finalist, they felt like this was really done along political lines and uh, among political affiliations. Kennedy is a uh, was a former congressman from Minnesota, uh, Republican there. And he had a history of voting against LGBTQ rights, um, and that caused a lot of controversy at the time. And students, uh, faculty, some really did protest against uh, Kennedy's appointment. You've been speaking to students about all of this. What are you hearing from them about Kennedy's departure? Students, uh, many of the activists on campus, they're really happy to see Kennedy uh, leaving. Kennedy, uh, just from the controversy when he came in, and then some of the things that he said uh, well on campus, and and the perception that he really responded slowly to uh, certain of national events, uh, supporting students of color, LGBTQ rights. Um, they really felt like he wasn't uh, representative of the campus and of the student makeup. And especially after uh, the George Floyd killing, many feel that uh, they need to hold leaders to a higher standard. 
students have told me that they really want to see um, someone who is more outspoken, who will uh, speak out when uh, injustices happen um, in a more forceful manner. And as far as the hiring, they want it to be transparent. They want to have a say, at least in what kind of characteristics the president has. Um, and they don't want it to be this, you know, political division like Kennedy's appointment in 2019. Now is maybe a good time to step back a little bit and ask about what a CU president does and how does a CU president sort of affect students on the day to day? Presidents at any large campus are really more the fundraiser. They help set policy and budgets. But as far as the day-to-day on a campus and how they really impact students, I it's, it's hard to say that they do. Most presidents just go about their business and students never really know who that president is in some ways. But like I said, the, the, the George Floyd killing has really um, changed how we view leaders and um, Kennedy's sometimes flippant remarks um, view, were viewed as, as really impacting the culture of campus. Um, one student put it to me, it's like the president of the United States. He doesn't affect your everyday life, but it can impact the culture and the direction of, you know, where you're living or your community and and what you're talking about on a day-to-day basis. I want to shift to quickly talk about how faculty fits into all of this. The faculty at CU Boulder voted to censure Mark Kennedy just two weeks before he announced his departure. It was the first time Boulder faculty had censured a president, and it was over issues as they related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Kind of what you're hearing from a lot of students is top of mind. What are you hearing from faculty about Kennedy's departure and the search for new leadership? Of course, the, the censure sort of speaks for itself. They, they really did not feel like he was leading on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Uh, but from faculty, I've also heard they've had some rub with his leadership style. They, they felt like Kennedy overstepped his role as a president. There's a shared governance, which is essentially breaking out certain roles, and faculty feel like, hey, we are the ones who set curriculum. We're how we teach students um, and with the online education system that Kennedy was trying to roll out, they really felt like he was taking that power away from them. Uh, Kennedy and his administration would really dispute that, but faculty, some of them really felt like this was uh, not the best relationship. Some even pointed to Bruce Benson, specifically one of the professors on campus, Bob Ferry, who teaches history. He really said, hey, look, President Bruce Benson, who preceded Kennedy, did a great job as president uh, of staying out of the way of, of faculty. And we never censured him. We never had that kind of issue with him. And what you're seeing with, with Kennedy is that they did not agree with his leadership style on um, some fronts. And it, it, that's a, a bit of a stark contrast from his predecessor. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. If you want to check out his reporting on this, you'll find a link at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, Henry. Like a lot of other states, Colorado is looking for ways to lower the cost of prescription drugs. In the absence of federal action, state officials are considering several approaches. Here to explain a bit more about this is Mark Ian Haraluk, senior Colorado correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Mark Ian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show again, Erin. 
Well, let's start with what's prompting these efforts in the first place. You know, we do hear a lot about the high cost of healthcare in general. What does this look like when we talk about the price of prescription drugs in Colorado? And I understand there was a report that came out in 2019 that detailed some state spending. The state of Colorado actually purchases more than a billion dollars worth of prescription drugs every year. That's just for their state-run programs, so things like Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program. And then, of course, all of us consumers are, are purchasing uh, prescription drugs regularly as well. Uh, the average consumer in the U.S. refills 17 prescriptions per year, and anybody who's filling a prescription takes, on average, four drugs every year. So it's sometimes with you know really high copays. It, it could be, you know, ten, twenty, thirty dollars for some of us that have good health insurance. For, for people who are paying out of pocket, or even sometimes people who do have insurance, those copays can be a hundred or a thousand dollars or more. And before we get into what the state is doing, we should note that the state is kind of limited in what it can and can't do, right? Yeah, I kind of describe it as having one arm tied behind its back, uh, you know, and this is why what Colorado, I think, is doing is so interesting is because drug prices are generally regulated on a federal level, on a national level, or even, you know, internationally. So things like, you know, the patent protections are set, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., the the prices you know the state doesn't have any control over what prices uh insurance company can charge so they have to kind of take up creative ways to try and impact the the costs the out of pocket costs for consumers in Colorado hence this sort of multi-pronged approach that's happening. One piece of this is uh, going on at the state capitol, and that is a drug affordability review board. This is an approach that's been to, uh, tried by a couple of uh, states already. Basically, what it would be is you'd create this board of you know a handful of experts that would look at some of the more expensive drugs in Colorado and decide whether these prices are affordable. Are they reasonable? And if not, uh, they, they have some limited capacity to affect that. They could create uh, what's called an upper payment limit, which would say in the state of Colorado, we're not going to pay more than X amount for a drug. And, you know, the drug company can charge whatever they want for it, but we're not going to pay any more than this. They could only do that for, for 12 drugs a year, but they can add another 12 drugs every year. So after a while, you can see this board operating for two, three, four years, you start to get a pretty big chunk of the most expensive drugs going through this affordability review process and having these upper payment limits. I imagine there are groups opposed to this. What are they saying? The pharmaceutical manufacturers, you know, they certainly are unhappy with any um, any kind of proposal that's going to uh, affect their ability to price drugs the way they want to. And what they're saying is, you know, this this is really going to uh, impact their research and development budgets, and they won't be they won't have the money to innovate and produce new drugs and find new cures for, for patients. And they have threatened in some cases that, you know, if, if states pass these kind of boards with, with the power to set limits on how much they could be paid for these drugs, they might not sell those drugs in Colorado. They might decide, you know, we'll, we'll focus on other markets. 
the advocates of, of the of the board say, you know, that's that's probably not very realistic for drug companies to do so. They would have to kind of separate states and drugs from their supply chains. It, it would be very complicated. I want to talk about some of the other routes that the governor's office is pursuing. Can you talk about some of that? You know, that 2019 report that you referenced earlier, in addition to sort of analyzing what were the drivers of high prescription costs, the state laid out, uh, you know, a number of options of here's the, here's the way we can impact this. Here are the different uh, measures that we can adopt. Some of them need legislative actions and some the state government can do on its own. And so one of the things they have started to implement is a prescriber's tool. And this is, you know, when your doctor, when he goes to prescribe a medication for you, uh, he or she could, you know, open up this prescriber tool and see this is what this drug would cost you under your health plan. And, and they can look at other alternatives. So, so maybe I don't prescribe this brand name drug. I, I, I prescribe this alternative, which will save you a lot of money. And doctors haven't had that information at their fingertips. They've you know, often had to prescribe a drug. The patient goes to the pharmacy, finds out it's going to cost them $200 a month. They call their doctor's office. The doctor has to scramble, try an alternative. It's just not a very efficient system. This prescriber tool is, is set to go live on July 1, and a lot of doctors have access to this already and are already using it. You know, It, it doesn't change the cost of drugs, but it, it provides some transparency for the prescriber so they can choose the lowest cost effective drug for that patient. So I'm wondering how Colorado and what Colorado is doing fits into the sort of national overview of what other states are doing. I think most states are in the same position as Colorado's. They're, they're just, they're tired of waiting for the feds to act on drug prices and they're taking uh, the initiative into their own hands. So, uh, I, you know, I, I saw an analysis from the National Association of State Health Plans where Every state, I believe, but Idaho, it currently has some sort of drug pricing reform bill under consideration in their legislature. Um, and uh, so states are kind of looking at what one another are doing, seeing what's effective, what can we borrow from, from, from our neighbors, and, and trying to put all of this together. Um, and the hope there is, you know, not only do states sort of become these little laboratories of experimentation where we can test new ideas, see if they work, uh, and then borrow from each other. But this might also, you know, create some momentum on a federal level. If, you know, we've seen this with a lot of other kind of health policy reforms uh, that a few states start passing this, and then the federal government will pass it for the country as a whole. And we saw that with the Children's Health Insurance Program, for example. I think it was 26 states had already put this program, which provides health care for, for kids in, in the state, um, before the, the federal government and Congress passed you know, a similar proposal to make this nationwide. Um, so it's you know it's quite likely that as as more states sort of try and, and address drug care costs, um, the federal government will say, hey, you know, this is a good idea. We should do this for everybody. Mark Ian Haraluk is senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You'll find a link to his reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last month, mummified remains of the leader of the Love Has One cult were found in the group's southern Colorado home in the town of Moffat. 
The body of Amy Carlson, known as Mother God to her followers, was in a sleeping bag wrapped in Christmas lights with glitter painted around her eyeless sockets. Since then, seven Love Has One followers have been arrested in connection with Carlson's death. The cult has been described as a blend of Christianity, political conspiracy theories, New Age spirituality, and historical myths. It was estimated to have 29 full-time members when Carlson died, according to the Denver Post. With Carlson gone, it's yet to be seen if a new leader will take power, or if followers will leave. Mental health experts who specialize in recovery from cults say escaping one can be like leaving an abusive relationship. One of those experts is Roseanne Henry, a Littleton-based professional counselor who has specialized in cult recovery for 30 years. Colorado Editions' Tess Novotny recently spoke with Roseanne about what recovery from a cult like Love Has One can look like. She started by explaining how she first came to work in cult recovery. Many of us are in the field because we've had personal experience in cults. And I was in a cult in the late 70s, another turbulent time in our lives like today. And I ended up in a kind of Eastern Hindu-based cult, my husband and I, for a few years. And we were fortunate to leave after a few years, but we still deal with some of the after effects of that experience. I understood that therapists did not understand cults through that process. And I'd always had an interest in psychology. And I decided that's what I wanted to turn my career towards that. At the age of 40, I went back to grad school, and then I've been developing this cult recovery specialty since then because there's such a need for it, and there's very few counselors who understand how this operates. Whenever I see news about cults, like what's happening with Love Has One right now, I always wonder how prevalent they are. What do you think? How common are cults in 2021? I think the, hor- the, the horrible things that happen in cults that are exposed get tons of media coverage. And then all of a sudden we decide cults are happening. And frankly, cults are happening all the time, but I don't have a way of documenting how they're happening. So it's very hard to quantify this. And I really work individually with people about what their experience was. And many of the ones that come to me have been abused in these settings. So we work with that. Why might someone become involved with the cult in the first place? What we do know, and the research over the last 40 years has confirmed, is that people tend to, quote, join cults, although they don't join cults. They get involved with groups that they finally figure out are cults when they're in a point of transition in their lives, period. That's all that we know that's a defining feature. Most people join groups because they think the group has a valuable mission or it's gonna improve their life or it's gonna create a community or a family of sorts for them or give them a greater spiritual experience than an organized religion. For instance, that was my intent when I quote, joined my Hindu cult. So most people join these organizations with very good intentions. And when you're in a point of transition in your life, you're going to be a little less defended and you're going to be more vulnerable to believe what they say. If they give you a message that makes sense to you or resonates with you personally, that's more likely that you're going to consider what they have to say and then sign on for the first seminar or listen to the the preacher for three hours instead of one or, you know, whatever is involved in entering the group. What makes a successful cult leader? Like, what, what do they do to draw people in? Oh, a successful cult leader has to have charisma, of course. You know, they have to be able to lead. 
But my experience with cult leaders are many of them have serious psychological problems. In fact, I believe many of them have personality disorders. And that's been my experience in 30 years that the, on the mild end are the narcissists and on the extreme end are the sociopaths. And they have to be able to function and to be able to continue to hold up the promises for a certain period of time that they make people to keep them. How do people eventually realize they're in a cult and, and maybe try to leave? Many people leave these groups not knowing they've been in a cult, myself included. Many people walk away. The majority of people do walk away from groups when they finally had enough. You're leaving your family, you're leaving your God, you're leaving your belief system, you're leaving your work. It's all of that. And while you're leaving, you have these parting curses in your head, which is what the cult leader said is going to happen if you leave. And for me, I, I gave up in enlightenment. When I left my group, I knew I wasn't going to be enlightened without that cult leader. That's what I really believed, that she had that kind of control over me. So many people think they give up nirvana, heaven, enlightenment, whatever. And then other people have to work with other basic things like cult leaders saying things like, you know, you're going to go blind or your mother's going to get cancer or your child's going to die. I mean, these things really happen in organizations. And when you're in them, you really believe that the leaders have that kind of control. And so it's very hard to sort out that reality. And that's an important part of cult recovery, but it takes time. What do you do when clients reach out to you? How do you help them? Of course, it depends on each client that approaches me. Most people these days that approach me were actually what I call kids raised in cults. And, and they're now kids that are in their 30s and 40s who have been out of the cult for a decade or two and are finally able to deal with what happened back there. And kids raised in cults, you know, basically lived in a very distorted world. Um, many of them had to deal with a lot of oppression, in my opinion, and a lot of abuse. But they're finally at a place that they can acknowledge it. And so sometimes we work with developmental problems. Sometimes we work with social problems. Sometimes we work with the rage they have at their parents for, uh, you know, for bringing them into the cult. It really depends on the situation. And I always want to work, obviously, where the client has energy to work and help them move through their life to make it what they want it to be at this point. You mentioned earlier that when you were Nicole, it was the 1970s, which was a time of really major social upheaval and change. And in many ways, we're going through another time like that in 2021. And I'm wondering, have you noticed a change in like the number of clients who are contacting you or the kinds of cults that, that they're involved with in recent years? My experience is from January 6th, I've had a queue of people to get into my private practice. Part of that, it, it doesn't mean that I have people waiting in line from QAnon. What that means is what's happening in our culture is affecting people who have been in cults in a way that there's more of an urgency to deal with their cult issues because they're being triggered by the news. They're being triggered by actions or inaction that our government takes. I've had more call from loved ones of people in QAnon, for instance. I also do that practice of working with loved ones of those in cults. And I consult so that they're prepared to understand what their loved one is going through while they're in the cult. But I think there's also a renaissance of cult documentaries that has also fed this public venue of 
what cults really look like and how they really operate. And I've had people call me and go, oh man, I watched that Nexium expose and I realized I really have to deal with, you know, this Jewish mystical cult that I was in. But I think it's a good thing to become more aware and to take more charge of this so that it doesn't get in the way of their life. Before we end, I want to turn back to Love Has Won. Obviously, Amy Carlson was a very successful leader. She had a whole group of devoted followers at the time that she died. And I'm wondering what typically happens when the leader of of a cult like this dies? Can someone else take power? Does it sometimes just disintegrate? It's, It's really unique to the cult. I think this vacuum of power is going to be, there's going to be people vying to fill in that void quickly. It looks like, you know, it's already begun in this group. It's hard to know. My cult leader died, and I'm not aware of a replacement yet. But um, in many groups, the replacements, there could be battles, you know, kind of like the kings of old. Uh, There could be political battles in this way, or it could be just a natural thing, like a spouse is the next one, or a son is the next leader, you know, almost like a, um, a family you know, succession type of thing, like royalty, it really depends. And um, each group's going to be unique. And it's going to depend, I guess, who's the last man or woman standing who ends up getting that power. Looks like there's there's two men already vying for it in this group, from what I can tell. It's going to depend what the what the followers allow, even though they have limited ability to decide. Roseanne Henry is a Littleton-based professional counselor who has specialized in cult recovery for nearly 30 years. Roseanne, thank you so much for talking with me. Appreciate the opportunity. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 